3 a.m. Tales of Terror contains explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to 3 a.m. Tales of Terror, where we talk about stories of the paranormal. I'm your host, Jamie. And I'm your co-host, Charlie. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about a story that might literally send some chills down your spine, because it sent chills down my spine when I was researching it, even though I already kind of know about it. It is the Velisca Axe Murders in Velisca, Iowa. So, if you know about this story, you know that it's pretty brutal. So, trigger warning up top. I mean, a lot of murder. (laughs) A lot of blood. Yeah. (laughs) And the way that we're going to do the episodes, I think, from now on, is I'll read a section, and then Charlie's going to read a section, and then I'll read another section, and then she'll read a section. That way, she's more involved, because I've gotten some opinions, and we're going to take them into consideration, and just kind of work on the tweaks as we develop more episodes. Yep. To start off, though, I'm going to start with the beginning of the Velisca Axe Murders, and we'll talk, and then she'll read, and then we'll talk. So, same kind of same kind of way that we've been doing it, just... Yeah, just me reading some of the story. Yep. Okay, so let's get started. So, Velisca Axe Murders in Velisca, Iowa. Sometime around midnight between Sunday, June 9th, and Monday, June 10th, 1912, a person or persons entered a modest house in Velisca, Iowa, and bludgeoned to death eight people sleeping there including two adults and six children aged 5 through 12. The killings became known as the Velisca Axe Murders and are easily the most notorious murders in Iowa history. The murders spawned nearly 10 years of investigations, repeated grand jury hearings, a spectacular slander suit and murder trial, and numerous minor litigations and trials. The horrific crime made and broke political careers. Legislation was written in response to the murder, including the establishment of the current State Bureau of Criminal Investigation's predecessor. So, anything you want to talk about that? Well, one, that 1912 is when the Titanic sank, So, but that's not important to the story at all, so just, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> the night before the murders. On Sunday evening, June 9th, 1912, Josiah, Joe, Moore, and his wife, Sarah, took their four children, Herman, 11, Catherine, 10, Boyd, 7, and five-year-old Paul to the Children's Day Service at the Presbyterian Church. Accompanying them were Lena, 12, and Ina Stillinger, 8, neighbors who had asked their parents permission to stay overnight with the Moore children. The Children's Day Service was an end-of-the-year Sunday school program. Sarah Moore was a co-director and her children performed their little speeches and recitations along with the other Sunday school members. The service ended with a social mingling that lasted until at least 9.30 p.m. When parishioners left on that cloudy, damp, and cool night, no one suspected that neither the Moors nor their overnight guest would ever be seen alive again. They walked three blocks to their home, cookies and milk ended the festive evening, and all went to bed. Sometime after midnight, the killer or killers picked up Joe's axe from the backyard, entered the house, and bludgeoned all eight of its occupants. By 7.30 a.m. on June 10th, Mary Peckham, an elderly neighbor to the west, became concerned when the Moore house seemed quiet and deserted. She called Joe's brother Ross, a local druggist, a pharmacist or retailer of medicinal drugs, who arrived at about 8 a.m. to look around. His cautious inspection of the downstairs revealed two figures covered with a sheet in the back bedroom, and he also saw blood on the bedstead. 
Ross stepped back and away from the crime scene and called Joe's Hardware Store, telling employee Ed Selly to fetch Marshall Henry, Hank Horton, because something terrible had happened. Hank arrived about 8.30 a.m., went through the house and found, as he told Ross when he came out, somebody murdered in every bed. The partially cleaned murder weapon was left leaning against the south wall of the downstairs bedroom where the visiting Stillinger girls were found. I need a neighbor like Mary Peckham to make sure, you know, that if something happens to me, I would want my neighbors to let me, to to let the police know that something is not right in my house. So kudos to Mary Peckham because I, she, I, everybody needs a neighbor like her. (laughs) Yeah. And today we're recording on June 11th. Oh, oh my gosh, we are. Yes. <laughs> it's not when this episode will be posted, but yes, we are yes. recording on June 11th. So that's a day and 110 years after. 110 years. Yeah. That's, oh man. When I was researching the story, I was researching it two days ago on the 9th. So I was like, oh my gosh, it happened on the day that I'm researching it. So, <laughs> so that's cool. Okay. So the bizarre murder scene is next. And so just, I'm just letting you know that this, this, scene might get a little descriptive just so you know the killer had added two bizarre touches to the murder scene the first was a four pound piece of slab bacon leaning against the wall next to the axe the murderer had also searched dresser drawers for pieces of clothing to cover the mirrors in the house and the glass in the entry doors on the kitchen table was a plate of uneaten food and a bowl of bloody water all the victims were found in their beds their heads covered with bedclothes and all their skulls battered 20 to 30 times with the blunt end of an axe. The ceiling in the parents' bedroom and the children's rooms upstairs showed gouge marks apparently made by the upswing of the axe. Though Lena Stillinger's nightgown had been pushed up and she'd been left exposed, doctors concluded she had not been sexually assaulted. Lena also had bloodstain on her knee and an alleged defense wound on her arm. The Moore Stillinger funeral services were held in Villisca's Town Square on June 12, 1912, with thousands in attendance. National Guardsmen blocked the street as a hearse moved toward the firehouse where the eight victims lay. Their caskets, not on display during the funeral, were later carried on several wagons to the Villisca Cemetery for burial. The funeral cortege was 50 carriages long. So, first off, 20 to 30 times. Yeah. For eight people. That's a lot of anger. In the head, though, too. So you wouldn't be able to tell. They were mush. Yeah, they were mush. And I'm surprised that they knew. I mean, obviously they knew the family. So I guess that helped distinguish who was who because they were all different ages. So, I mean, that probably helped distinguish who was who because if nobody knew this family and they found and somebody found a family with their heads smashed in 20 to 30 times, you wouldn't know, you would not know who they were. Like, yeah. So that's, I mean, it's great that people knew who they were because great neighbors. Yeah. And great neighbors. Let's not forget the great neighbors. (laughs) Yeah. And 50 carriages long, thousands in attendance. That's sad. That made me sad because I, well, number one, because of all the kids that died i mean the six kids died and they're they're like they're they were so young their lives just so ahead of them and i know i believe it's still a mystery to today mm-hmm. that nobody knows yeah we're about to happened. talk yeah. about all of our suspects yes we are so we're going to talk about one suspect that did not get he wasn't convicted but uh then there's a list of suspected murders that had their reasons but 
nothing ever came up. So we'll we'll read about those because I thought that was all interesting. Yes. So our first suspect is the Reverend. At 5.19 a.m. the morning following the murders, the Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly left Villisca on board the westbound number 5 train and allegedly told fellow travelers there were eight dead souls back in Villisca, Iowa, butchered in their beds while they slept, and he said, even though the bodies had not been discovered yet. Kelly had arrived in Villisca for the first time the Sunday morning of the murders and attended a Sunday school performance by the Stillinger girls before departing early Monday. He returned two weeks later and, posing as a detective, joined a tour of the murder house with a group of investigators. Authorities first became interested in Reverend Kelly a few weeks after the murders, after being alerted by recipients of his rambling letters. Kelly, the son and grandson of English ministers, had suffered a mental breakdown as an adolescent. Since immigrating to America with his wife in 1904, Kelly had preached at a Methodist churches across North Dakota, Minnesota, Kansas, and Iowa. He'd been assigned as a visiting minister to several small communities north of Villisca, where he developed a reputation for odd behavior. He'd also been convicted of sending obscene material through the mail and had spent time in a mental hospital. A grand jury indicted Kelly for Lena Stillinger's murder, and he was interrogated throughout the summer of 1917 while in jail awaiting trial. On August 31st at 7 a.m., Kelly signed a confession to the murder saying God had whispered to him, Suffer the children to come unto me. Kelly recanted his confession at trial, and his case went to the jury on September 26. The jury deadlocked 11 to 1 for acquittal. A second jury was immediately impaneled, but acquitted Reverend Kelly in November. That is insane, number one. Because, and very, very suspicious. Like, come on. Especially when he... He tells people that there were eight dead souls back in Villisca where nobody had discovered the bodies yet. So how did you know that? Yeah. At 519 would in have been a perfect morning. time to be leaving from the murder. Yeah. Because they got home at 930 and didn't get discovered until 8. Yeah. Midnight and 8 a.m. So come on. Yeah. I don't know. I think I feel like that there should have been more um, investigating done on him. Not just, oh, yeah, well, he's been acquitted. Cause, I mean, it was 1917. Yeah. And I guess there just wasn't, like, enough evidence, which, I don't know, still seems very suspicious. Yes. So these are a list of the suspected murderers that I found. So I know none of these have um, ever been, they weren't ever really looked into. They were just suspected because of their either relationship with the Moore family or any, or some other reason, just being in the area at the time, whatever. So, the first one is Frank F. Jones. Frank Fernando Jones was a Villisca resident and Iowa State Senator. Josiah Moore had worked for Frank Jones at his implement store for many years before leaving to own his own store. Moore reportedly took business away from Jones, including a very successful John Deere dealership. Moore was rumored to have had a sexual affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, though no evidence supports this. So, that's a suspected victim, or suspected... <laughs> Suspected killer number one. Then next one is William Mansfield. Uh, another theory was that Senator Jones hired William Blackie Mansfield to murder the Moore family. Nine months before the murders at Villisca, a similar case of axe murder occurred in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Two axe murder cases followed in Ellsworth, Kansas and Paola, Kansas. 
The cases were similar enough to raise the possibility of having been committed by the same person. Other murders reported as possibly being linked to these crimes include the numerous unsolved axe murders along the Southern Pacific Railroad from 1911 to 1912. The unsolved axe men of New Orleans killings, as well as several other such murders during this time period. The murders in Colorado Springs were closely related in execution to those in the Moore House. H.C. Wayne, his wife and child, and Mrs. A.J. Burnham were found dead, murdered with an axe or axes. Bed sheets were used to cover the windows to prevent passersby from looking in. At the Moore house, the murderer hung aprons and skirts to cover the windows. As in the murders in Villisca, the murderer in Colorado Springs wiped the blood off his axe and covered the heads of the victims with bedclothes. It's crazy that there was so many axe murders around this time. Gosh, I know. Like, they had guns then. They had knives. And everyone's choosing axes. The, ah! Or is it just one serial killer? Exactly. Exactly. Because these details are way too similar. Like, the cleaning of the axe, and the covering of the windows, and the covering of the faces. Like, that is way too similar. Like, come on now, somebody... Or a copycat. Or a copycat. Because you know they put all of this in the newspapers. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Or everybody knows about it because everybody knows everybody back then. Mansfield was also the prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkerson, who suggested that he was a cocaine-addicted serial killer. According to contemporary news reports, Wilkerson believed Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in Blue Island, Illinois, on July 5th, 1914, two years after the Villisca axe murders, almost to the date. The axe murders committed in Paola, Kansas, four days before the Villisca murders and the murders of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Illinois. According to Wilkerson's investigations, all of the murders were committed in precisely the same manner, indicating that the same man probably committed them. Wilkerson stated that he could prove that Mansfield was present in each of the different, each of the differing crime scenes on the night of the murders. In each murder, the victims were hacked to death with an axe and the mirrors in the homes were covered. A burning lamp with the chimney off was left at the foot of the bed and a basin in which the murderer was and the murderer washed was found in the kitchen. In each case, the murderer avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves, which Wilkerson believed was strong evidence that the man was Mansfield, who knew his fingerprints were on file at the Federal Military Prison in Leavenworth. Wilkerson managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916, and Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County from Kansas City. Payroll records, however, provided an alibi that placed Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. He was released for a lack of evidence and later won a lawsuit he brought against Wilkerson and was awarded $2,225. We should look that up and see how much that is in today's money. Yeah, that's probably quite a bit. Yeah. Wilkerson believed that the pressure from Jones resulted not only in Mansfield re- in Mansfield's release, but also in the subsequent arrest and trial of Reverend Kelly. However, R.H. Thorpe, a restaurant owner from Shenandoah, Iowa, identified Mansfield as the man he saw the morning after the Villisca murders boarding a train in Clarinda. The man had said he walked from Villisca. If proven to be true, this testimony would disprove Mansfield's alibi. 
Furthermore, it was reported that a Miss Vena Tompkins of Marshalltown was on her way to testify that she heard three men in the woods plotting the murder of the Moore family a short time before the killings. Yes. When did she step up and say something? Because she should have said something when she heard that. Yeah. Like, you don't just hear somebody wanting to commit murder and then be like, oh, well, well, he actually did it, maybe. Yeah. What? Different times. Different times. Yes. So our next suspect is Henry Lee Moore. Henry Lee Moore was a suspected serial killer who was not related to the Slane Moore family, who was convicted of the murder of his mother and grandmother several months after the murders in Villisca, his weapon of choice being an axe. Before and after the murders in Villisca, the very similar axe murders on his mother and grandmother were committed, and all of the cases showed striking similarities, leading to strong suspicion that some or all of the crimes were committed by an axe murdering serial killer, and, just like Blackie Mansfield, the axe murdering Henry Moore can also be considered a suspect in some of these slayings. Who, who killed his mother and grandmother? He, did he do it? Did he yeah, do it? he did it. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Yes. Because he... He killed them. Okay. That, I guess, in that the, part of the research, I was like, Velisca. what is happening? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, I guess he would have been arrested afterwards because gotcha. he killed... Because he killed his parents after he suspectedly killed... Gotcha. Velisca. Okay, just ignore me. Keep going. <laughs> the next uh, suspect is Sam Moyer. At the inquest, it was reported that Sam Moyer, Josiah's brother-in-law, often threatened to kill Josiah Moore. However, upon further investigation, Moyer's alibi cleared him of the crime. He, they just didn't get along. Yeah, that definitely, they definitely just didn't get along, because I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I would threaten to kill somebody. Like, I mean, I wouldn't, but I don't <laughs> know if... Would you? <laughs> uh, listen, <laughs> I don't know if you would threaten to kill somebody just because you don't like them or maybe he didn't like him because he was married to his sister yeah i don't know you want me to read the last one yeah and our last suspect is paul mueller in their 2017 book the man from the train bill james and his daughter rachel mccarthy james discussed the Velisca murders as part of a much larger series of murders which they believe were all committed by a single serial killer they conclude the murderer was Paul Mueller, or Miller, an immigrant possibly from Germany who was the suspect of an unsuccessful year-long manhunt as the sole suspect in the 1897 murder of a family in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, who had employed him as a farmhand. James started his research in an attempt to solve the Velisca murders and with his daughter found archival newspaper stories detailing dozens of families murdered under similar circumstances across the U.S., the Jameses thus believe that Mueller was guilty of the Velisca murders as part of a killing spree that lasted over a decade, killing at least 59 people in 14 separate incidents, including the Colorado Springs and Paloa crimes. The Jameses identify common features in these crimes, many of which are also found at the Velisca scene. That's a lot of people. Yeah, definitely serial killer. Yeah. Because... Like I said earlier, all these axe murders, so over 10 years, a decade is 10 years. Did nobody own anything other than a freaking axe? Yeah. Like, at all? Like, ever? Nobody? 59 people. axes in our houses. Like... I mean, then, yeah, I mean, wood-burning stoves and whatnot, but... Uh, yeah, I guess you're right. 
But still, that's... To kill 59 people with an axe, like, in 10 years, that just seems a little high for normal. In 14 separate incidents, so what's that? Like, there's 14 cases of murders, and then the 59 people are spread out between the 14 separate cases. So I wonder about what's that average? Like, she's doing math real quick. <laughs> she's better. About, like, four and a half. Four, okay, so, a like, murder scene. Four people-ish. Yeah. Okay. I think I did that right. I'm not really sure. Well... If she didn't, you can correct her. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the killer selected families who live near railroad tracks, which is why the killer was suspected to have traveled, hence their book's title, seemingly struck an ambush at about midnight while the victims were asleep, used the blunt side of an axe rather than the blade to strike the victims in the head and face, used an axe found at the victim's home and left in plain sight after the murders, covered the victims with blankets to prevent blood splatter, covered windows from inside the house, and locked the doors before departure. In Mueller's suspected crimes, there was often, but not always, a sexual motive directed towards a pubescent girl, as with Lena's being partly disrobed. In a blurb on the dust jacket of the hardcover edition of The Man from the Train, professor and crime writer Harold Schechter writes that the Jameses offered the most probable solution yet for the Velisca murders. No one else has ever tried, has ever been tried for the murders, and the crime remains one of the most horrific unsolved mass murders in American history. A hundred and ten years later, and it is still unsolved. That is. I like the way that story sounds. It's either the reverend or a serial killer that nobody knows. Right. I mean, the those are definitely like two options i can understand you know the suspected murders i found on wikipedia like they're they all have their reasons of course for possibly being a suspect but i do think i do agree with you that either it it either was the the reverend or it was just some rando serial killer just going across the u.s by railroad tracks so i don't really think that you know the suspected ones i just found but and their you know their stories are suspicious but you never know and they might have been a serial killer shoot they might be one of the serial killers that we don't know they're all dead now yeah definitely thank goodness (laughs) yeah right okay so on june 10th 2004 fourth wall films released a documentary film velisco living with a mystery which first premiered in des moines Filmmakers Kelly and Tammy Rundle combined period photographs, computer animation, original art, limited reenactment, and interviews with historians, eyewitnesses, town residents, and forensic experts to shed light on the then 92-year-old mystery to reveal the face of a new suspect. The documentary, now available on DVD, features Dr. Edgar Epperly, the historian considered the foremost authority on the Velisca Axe murders, Ten years in the making, the documentary explores the possibility that the Velisca crime and similar murders in Monmouth, Illinois, Colorado Springs, Colorado, and Ellsworth, Kansas, may have been the work of one of America's first serial killers. Court TV reporter Catherine Cryer interviewed Kelly Rundle and Dr. Epperly for a program that aired on November 21, 2006. And then on the 100th year anniversary, so back in 2012, on June 10th, 2012, a number of Iowa newspapers covered the 100-year anniversary of Iowa's most highly profiled crime. KCRG-TV9's piece featured an additional video with a tour inside the notorious home. So I'm sure you can find that, which we're going to post pictures on our social media, of course, of the house and stuff like that. 
You guys can see what it looks like. I want to know what the reverend looks like. I know. I will definitely try and find pictures and put post them up because if he looks like a serial killer, <laughs> definitely, probably did it. I also do want to mention that in case you wanted more information or probably a different side, I don't know, I haven't listened to these episodes or these podcasts, but on episode 16 of Lore, uh, the Villisca Axe Murders was discussed, and on episode 168 of My Favorite Murder, it was also discussed, so you can look them up and see how they broke down the story. Yes. Is there anything that you wanted to, anything else you had, any other comments? It was a little, it was a lot. It was a lot. A lot of suspects. A lot of a lot of death. Gosh, so much death. I just wish... I hate that it's never been solved. I really do. I don't know. I just... Maybe one day it will. Then again, maybe it never will. I think they would have solved it by now if they saved DNA or found any. For sure. So, any war gloves. So, no fingerprints. No fingerprints. Yeah. It's a sad story, but it's... I mean, it's definitely one of a mystery because we just don't know what happened. We don't know who did it or why. And and I think that's probably the, the hardest part is the not knowing why. What did they do? They probably didn't do anything. It's just yeah. why. They why? were there. The door was possibly unlocked and they just did it. <sighs> Somebody, you have to have a motive though, I feel like. So I don't know. Maybe not. Watch all those true crime shows. It's... The motive of serial killers. Yeah. He had bad relationships with his parents. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you wanted to say? Any other nope. comments? Okay. I'm good. Well, then I guess that is all for our show today. Thanks for coming to hang out with us on our fourth episode. I hope that you guys really enjoyed this story as much as we did. And I hope that you guys continue to come back each week and hang out with us. Don't forget that you can find us on social media. Uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok. All of the links can be found on our website, 3amtalesofterror.com. That's the number three, not the word. You can scroll down to the bottom under contact us, subscribe with your email for updates, and follow us on all of our social media accounts to also keep up with updates and see pictures from all of our stories on there. And if you have any questions or story ideas for us, please feel free to email us at info at 3amtalesofterror.com. Yes, we hope you'll join us next week. And we We hope hope you were terrified. terrified.